1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Literary Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin, and I'm here today with my guest, Michael Snedeker. Hello. Hello, Michael. It's great to have you on the show today. Um, And today we're gonna be talking about your new book. Um, It's titled, Contingent Figure, Chronic Pain and Queer Embodiment. And it's out through the University of Minnesota Press um, and it came out this year in 2021. i um, super excited to have you on the show and to talk about this. It was such an interesting read um, and such a good read. You are a great writer. Um, thank you. Um, so before we dive into the book, I have to ask, um, what is your background? Um, and what is not just like your personal background, but maybe also what brought you to writing this book?
0: Yeah, um, sure. First, thank you again for an- inviting me, Brett. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, I'm grateful for your interest in the book and uh, delighted in advance for your audience slash readership. Um, as far as background and sort of what motivated the book, um, as i as I write in the preface, my relation to chronic pain goes almost as far back as my relation to to coming out, um, coming out in college um I guess sophomore junior year uh was also the beginning of living with all sorts of, sort of un- unpredictable forgive is the motorcycle audible I live on a <laughs> bit street in Houston um d- So in my early 20s, I was first experiencing the the first sort of hiccups of an unreliable body. Um, I have sort of clear memories of friends asking me in school why I was always cracking my neck. I wasn't quite aware of it as a problem at that point. Um, But as I was sort of up to my neck, my gills, in queer theory, I found myself sort of equally worried about, interested in this, this question of being someone with chronic pain even as there didn't seem to be a vocabulary for it at the time. this was the, the late 90s. Um, I'm so old. Um, so so in the midst of, of grad school and queer optimism, um, I, I was I was living this 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 uh, sort of braided life. there was sort of the, the queerness and sort of my investment in sort of queer activism and sort of sort of a, a life of idiosyncratic desire on the one hand. And on the other, this uh, this life that felt sort of like uh, proleptically old, um, sort of worried about sort of uh, things like how long I could sit in the car, worried about um, how much I could get thrown during sex, uh, things like that. And I wasn't at that point yet a Jamesian, but I, I found myself sort of formulating a sort of a Jamesian relation to my my self-care or sort of the absence of a vocabulary for that self-care. Um, so even as I think some people sort of um, might, might sort of smirk at sort of the author of Quir Optimism moving from a book about sort of positive affect to a, a book about pain, um, the the investments feel coextensive. Insofar so far as my my goal in writing Contention Figure was to find a surface area for pain that didn't necessarily seem seem present in the literature, to make pain feel differently livable. Um whether the, the livability of it was, was pleasing or not.
1: That's really interesting. Um, I actually, so I read a lot of, I'm not sure if I got the whole thing done, but I definitely read a lot of um, queer optimism as an undergrad. Um, and I get what you're saying. There is um, a coextensivity, or I think I the same affect of reading is found in pleasure and pain. And I'm, I'm sure... Th- that we could talk more about that um but i i want to jump right into the book yeah. um and i think i think the first thing i want to ask is maybe definitional and i think to help listeners get their bearings um so when we say um i guess chronic pain and embodiment can you talk a little bit about how that how that's experienced as a reader or like how that comes out in this text as kind of maybe the the privileged um, the privileged means of what your exploration is.
0: So when you say, say, Brett, chronic pain or embodiment as experienced um, as, as a reader, are you in, invoking sort of a, a a generalized reader or my experience as a, as a reader? I think or, both. Okay. Uh, that's fair. Um, let's see. So I, so in sort of an earlier moment of, of queer theory, maybe when um, sort of first wave gay and lesbian lit crit was was becoming queer theory, um, there was all sorts of, of purchase, I think, in the way in which one's queerness, one's sort of erotic predilections um, could inspire, illuminate forms of reading that weren't otherwise necessarily perceptible to sort of a, sort of a non-queer readership. And th- From there, it doesn't seem too. It didn't seem too far of a stretch to imagine chronic pain as some version of uh, an analogous divining rod. rod, um, The extent to which um, one's lived experience um, produced uh, produced a vantage, um, and um, that vantage, uh, whether sort of trained on a poem or whether trained on sort of one sort of quotidian world. Um, would be particular to you. Um, and I'm I'm worried slash sort of like paused as I speak because the the relation between that vantage and something like an identity, identity politics doesn't necessarily sort of uh, seem self-evident, um, which is to say that if say one's identity as a queer person or someone with disabilities um, would sort of show up as a kind of, Question of political representativeness, the version of vantage that I'm thinking about as a reader is is more f- fine grained, uh, more idiosyncratic to use that word again, and isn't necessarily coextensive or equal to something like a political position. Um, so, in that sense, the vantage to go back to your word embodiment um, feels peculiarly sort of beneath sort of larger identity claims Um, in the same way one learns to to inhabit a body and to sort of to sort of learn a literacy for one's own body. Um, That literacy, I I think, is one of the strangest things in the universe. And it's that strangeness that becomes a vantage, I, I think, for for forms of reading. So that's, that's one part of an answer. Another part in terms of um, chronic pain and embodiment and its relation to reading is that when one reads, I, like ideally it is not distracted by these other things. For instance, by pain, um, when one has a migraine or when one has a cold, COVID, you name it. Um, suddenly one's thinking about that instead of the text in front of you. So that's just to say that as much as something like pain can offer a vantage, it's also sort of a, a flickering interruption of, of awareness.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And, I, and it brings me to this, um, this quote that you have at the very beginning in the introduction where you write about the need to disarticulate chronic pain from character. Um, and and you, you question, or you rhetorically question, um, you say, after all, isn't character precisely what one would expect to look for a literary representation of chronic pain or disability more generally? Um, so your answer is is no, or well, it's yes, but it's yeah. we need to go further than that. So where are you looking? Um, if not um, the character or characterology, where do we go instead? And how does that illuminate something that characterology can't?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, Brett. Um, the, 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 the place I go for thinking about chronic pain Beyond characterology is what I think about as as a kind of figurative intensity, um, identity, uh, a, a strangeness in the writing itself. Um, I, th- I think about those moments in terms of writerliness, uh, loosely sort of based on sort of the model of uh, of a painterly painting. Um, so for for your audience out there, um, when one thinks about a landscape painting, it's it's lighthouse beach gazebo, Um, when the painting goes painterly, one's aware of the the qualities of the paint, the process by which it was put together. So painterliness becomes then a departure from questions of the representational or the mimetic. So if, if that's one way of thinking about the painterly, the writerly would be those moments where one is drawn less to what the writing mimetically conjures than the quality of the writing itself, whether uh, affective intensity or a, a sort of verve um, that isn't necessarily um, in, invested in sort of modeling some version of the of verve in the outside world. Uh, the world in those moments is the writing. Um, at its simplest, it goes back to sort of boilerplate chestnuts uh, about writing being sort of the event unto itself. Um, so in these moments of writerly vividness, um, I, I find something related to, um, and related to sometimes is the closest I can get to saying what that relation is, related to an experience of, of pain.
1: I'm happy to I, say
0: more in relation
1: to any of that. Oh, no, I think, I was just thinking that um, the, the related to it is something we'll, we'll get to later um, when we talk about like um i think that'll be something that comes up um but i think i i want to get into the text and get into the literature um and you start out um with melville and um moby dick which i i i don't want to say like is like the obvious choice because i don't think there is an obvious choice but um maybe it is if there had to be one um you know Ahab and the leg or or the peg leg and um, I think it's you write that um, like the impossible ontology of chronic pain and then and then later you say that Moby Dick or Pierre um, which we can also discuss can teach us something elemental about the experience of chronic pain. Um, I wonder, can you just say a little bit more about what what exactly is that? Um, what is not just what is it, but how is this such a an elemental thing that it's the first chapter yeah. um, in your text? Yeah. Um,
0: I think you're right that Moby Dick. Is there a cat over there? Yeah, um, that the cat, like the cat, seemed to sort of like come into the universe as you said, relation. And I was imagining relation is sort of a funny name for for a cat, uh, misanthropic creatures as they are. Um, anyway, you're, you're right. Moby Dick seems like sort of like the most likely suspect um, insofar as Ahab is this this, this poster girl uh, for like life with disability. Uh, one thinks about Ahab and, and his leg as much as one thinks about Ahab and the whale. Um, and again, the constellation of leg to whale to person um, has, has been sort of deeply mined by Melvillians. I, I turn to Moby Dick in, in part because I think there's so much more to be learned about chronic pain or somatic uh, vicissitude um, if one moves away from the character of Ahab. As I say in the book, um, Ahab might teach us what chronic pain looks like, but I think one needs to move elsewhere for a sense of how chronic pain feels. That's to say that figurative language, uh, whether in Moby Dick or Pierre, gets closer for me to something like the the felt phenomenological experience of of pain. Oh, there. uh, So, what is the cat's name, by the way? It's actually Bartleby. Stop. (laughs) That's an even better cat name because I'm sure. He prefers not to, except for when he does, and he clearly he does now. Um, that's very sweet. Um, so in terms of sort of what you sort of invoke me as invoking when it comes to this sort of elemental quality of pain, it has to do with, let's see, it has to do, I think, with this category of the figurative um, that that I'm playing with, and the figurative's d- distance from metaphor conventionally speaking, but also figurations seeming location between something like the literal and the non-literal. Um, as I argue, Melville um, and, and Henry James and Dickinson and Nathaniel Hawthorne, etc um seem sort of deeply invested in this this space uh, of the figurative that isn't quite the empirical um, as as usually imagined doesn't speak to the the, the lived external conditions of the world um, but also isn't sort of expelled to say a metaphorical register per se it seems to exist in this hinterland between them um, Hawthorne's word for this is romance, as he defines it, this sort of moonlit space between the actual and the imaginary. And I think that space where one can't quite tell the actual from the imaginary uh, is, is certainly at the heart of, of Melville's uh, projects, uh, broadly broadly conceived. Um, to go back to your cat, Bartleby doesn't quite seem actual in part because so so, so vitiated as a character. Um, but also Bartleby doesn't quite seem allegorical. After all, he exists in this very sort of non-allegorical world of Wall Street with a, a bunch of sort of, sort of n- n- Nimrod colleagues. So in that sense, Bartleby's inhabiting of this sort of r- real space would be an experience of something that isn't quite literal, but also not quite not literal. And that's, that's very much how I imagine the the language, the idiom, the grammar of, of chronic pain, not quite actual, but not quite imaginary.
1: Mm-hmm. You just, you mentioned that there's a difference between figurative language um, and metaphor. And I wonder if you could kind of parse out the two there. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm just thinking of, I don't know, and how that relates to, literature, I mean, I think when people think of literature, we think of, you know, figurative language or something that really, really notices or wants you to notice that it's, it's figured or shaped, um, to go back to the etymology of yeah, yeah. the term. Um, so how are you making that distinction? and How does that distinction come into play? Um, when we think about maybe literature as a privileged site for this kind of explanation of pain?
0: Um, that's interesting too. As you were speaking, I was getting texts um, and both ignoring the, like the text, doing my best to ignore them and listening. So we'll, we'll see what I can <laughs> hold on to as an answer. Um, so I guess the, the, the first thing to which I would respond has to do with the distinction between figurative language and metaphorical language. Um, when, I, when I teach metaphor to, to my undergrad kiddos, um, I, God bless them on the spring break. May they be safe, um, and not doing too much work. Um, I, I invoke sort of the, the traditional sort of, uh, like complement of metaphorical vehicle and metaphorical tenor, the notion that one element of, of metaphor has its foot sort of in this world. And, uh, it has sort of another foot in, in this other world to which we don't have access. Um, so in terms of, say, Blondie heart of glass, we have a sense as to what glass is. Uh, Glass can be seen through, glass can be shattered, glass can become a shiv, you name it, depending on one's reading of the Blondie song. Um, And all of these sort of felt characteristics of glass would inform this thing that is beyond our can, love, for instance, uh, sort of feelings of another for oneself. Um, So that's That's sort of the the general structure metaphor, like one part here, one part there. Um, Figurative language for me differs insofar as it's not one foot in this world and one foot in the other so much as it's just sort of deeply inhabited, uh, inhabiting this this single space that isn't quite one or the other. And it's an important distinction because I think figurative language uh, unmoored from or disarticulated from conventions and metaphors is, is far less predictable, far less stable. Um, one thinks about sort of the, the two sides of metaphors, almost sort of neutralizing each other, um, n- normalizing or securing me- meaning or sort of legibility. Whereas in sort of the absence of sort of an outside, when it comes to figurative language, uh, it feels more wily. There isn't a place to, to look other than what one is looking at. Um, in terms of sort of the, the relation between sort of the figurative and the literary, um, I wonder if um, I wonder if the category of the aesthetic more generally um, gets us gets us closer to or gets us close to um, sort of what I what I admire in sort of a textuality, generally speaking. And that's to say that sort of when one thinks about an aesthetic text, one thinks about it as an object in its own right. When one thinks about a, a line of a poem, say like a line from Hart Crane, um, one isn't necessarily thinking about it in relation to an outside. Um, I, I invoke this notion of outside when it comes to uh, sort of the aesthetic or the literary Uh, in part because it echoes this notion of the inside and the outside of metaphor, the notion that sort of there's one aspect of metaphor that sort of is that one understands and one that one doesn't Um, as a way of thinking about sort of close reading. uh, And because I think Contingent Figure is as much a book about close reading as anything else. Um, So if if there's a certain aspect of of a literary text um, that that seems most sort of vibrant or or worth protecting, it would be the extent to which the text simply is a text. Um, and in in that regard, you know, and this is this is also a cliche. Um, any any text could be a literary text if sort of the right attention is trained on it. Um, attention is something else that we could think about in relation to these things. Um, so, where was I? so if 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 the literary isn't an intrinsic to the text itself but has in part to do with sort of the the quality one confers to the text in terms of one's interest in it if interest uh potentially alchemizes texts that don't seem literary into seeming so um then then figurative would name a particular um sort of locus of attention or quality of attention um there are versions of literary texts that one just sort of like plows through, whether it's sort of like, I don't know, certain beach reeds or trollop, um, like certain, certain texts require sort of different sort of like registers of, of care. And the version of the literary that I'm most drawn to has an element of, of difficulty, for lack of a better word, um, which requires patience, which requires slowing down. So in that sense, if any literary text, or any text uh, requires attention, the sort of attention that this, this figurative uh, phenomena solicits feels even more like attention, either like attention with its finger in the socket, or a kind of attention and drag where sort of the, the qualities of one's um, awareness are all the more amplified, all the more vivid not least because the thing to which one gives attention doesn't necessarily seem to give it back. Um, It's it's not quite that the text is withholding so much as the text doesn't explain how one is able to read it. Um, So to go back to your question of sort of why a literary text would be privileged, it's in part because literary texts get us closer to the question of what we do when when we read it all. Um, And I think the more... Challenging the experience of reading, the more what one grows conscious of, of reading as as a practice that one can't always take for granted.
1: Does that make sense? That's, yeah, that's so interesting. Um and it, it brings me back to this idea that you were talking about earlier with um I guess the the maybe a, almost a mindless type of reading where you can just sit down and go through it um, versus other types of reading where you're much more aware. You were originally talking about, um, like, how disability or chronic pain can disrupt the reading process and say, like, you know, you are a body. You are not this Cartesian ghost floating around. But I think some texts certainly can say, like, I mean, I I have felt this with Moby Dick. It's like, it's a very long book and you have to get through it. And sometimes it's in some way it really forces you to think about the fact that you're in a body. It's like, oh my God, I've been sitting in this chair for so long, or my eyes hurt. I'm tired of reading. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. And I think that's such an interesting thing that, that literature can make us think about the fact that we're in a body rather than t- escape us from it.
0: That's um, really, really interesting, Brett. Um, I, and I, I think that's beautifully put. Moby Dick is a whale of a book. And Uh, as one tries to disappear into it, the extent to which the text or oneself doesn't quite allow one to disappear into it calls one's attention to a somatic experience that is external to the reading. Um, Sometimes I imagine sort of one's experience of a body, in a body, when one reads, as something like the remainder that reading can't quite contain. So if one p- sort of pours oneself and one's attentions and investments, et cetera, into reading all those other aspects of self that, um, that remain sort of outside of what one gives the text, end up feeling all the more like sort of the body, um, those, those aspects that are not appeasable. Um, but you're right when it comes to, like a, a book like Moby Dick, um, it's it's an endurance sport or sort of to think about it in relation to forms of art. It's an endurance art. Um, and to be immersed in it is to experience one's own body's relation to an endurance also. Uh, and then from there, one isn't so far from thinking about Edgar Allan Poe's account of, of reading a poem and how a poem should always be short enough that it can be read in one sitting. Um, as though, and this is something every every grad student knows. Every cat belonging to a grad student knows. Um, most things can't be read in one sitting, um, and the longer one one sits, and this is where sort of sitting as sitting with the book becomes its own version of a sort of like a, a meditative practice. Um, sort of conjures all the things one is doing when one is trying to do something else, um, such that when when one is trying not to be distracted, those things that do distract one. Um, all the more take on sort of shapes, uh, sort of formal contours, um, to think about this n- next to sort of a, another author critic that I admire very much. It, it's, I think of Ray Tarada's work on Coleridge and these, um, what she imagines is phenomenophiliac phenomena, philiac, uh, phenomena, like experiences, things that are outside of the sort of what one is wanting to focus on. Uh, what, what sort of lies beyond the purview of sort of an ideal version of experience. Um, And those versions of experience outside of experience uh, have a salience that they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, I I really love your your formulation, Brit, it it turns reading into a kind of Bill Viola project, um, where just sitting sitting with this book and expecting to disappear into it as, as you sort of invoke the Cartesian ghost. Um, becomes the impossibility of that ghostliness um, One always gets the opposite of what one thinks one wants.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's reading's a very I I, I would say a kenotic, um event, but you can't when you take out the divine and put it in the book, you're you're left with the the human body, and I think that's you bring up the Poe, and I think that's so true. My, one of my classes read that earlier this year, um, and we all laughed about the fact that you know, some of us can sit in a library for 10 hours. Um, yeah. Not me. I, I think if a poem is longer than a page, I think it's long. Um, but I, that's my hot take. That's my controversial opinion. Um,
0: I think that's I important. And I think we could make <laughs> T-shirts um, sold through, um, you know, the the podcast. Um like, yeah, I my students would buy them up and then you wouldn't need to worry about a job which like you'll get a job because clearly <laughs> you will but also one wouldn't need to if one began through sort of the t-shirt industry. <laughs>
1: Thank you, I really might sell those. Um, So I wanna talk about something else. Um, And we've kind of been drifting towards it, Um, chronologically is is how your book goes, but um, something of the disappearance of the self in literature. And I think um, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, when he was accepting his Nobel Prize speech, he said, a story is someone saying, this is what it feels like to me, does it feel like this to you? Um, or does it feel this way to you? And I think what that gets me to is the word like. And I think literature is, um, I think when you define it earlier, I think it's all that and the word like. It's always saying this is what it is like to someone else. And I want to ask you about how you are using the word like and what your what your emphasis and analysis is on it in the second chapter and how it um, relates to... Embodiment and queerness and and pain um, and the whole idea that you know it there's this figurality to language that you're you're focusing on, but that figurality is also pointing to the fact that the book and the reader can't overlap completely. Um, you bring up um, maybe you bring up the term or uh, the image of the Venn diagram at the beginning of this chapter, and I think that's so interesting because the Venn diagram can't be a circle because then you would just have one group. Um, yeah. That was my analysis. That's my, another mind blowing moment.
0: That's hardcore. No, that's really good. Um, my only request is if we make that t-shirt, we make another one that, that just says like, um, and I guess we'd pronounce it like you just do it with sort of the, the swish of victory. Um, but your, your account of 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 sort of my interest in like is is really helpful for me to hear and i should say that i haven't thought about contingent figures since since i received my first copy in december so it's it's a real pleasure to think about this book with you and to to return to it through your interlocution um so one of the ways i think about like as a as a word is that it's both incredibly little And usually disappears into sort of the larger universe in which it finds itself. So, for instance, heart like a my heart is like glass. To go back to the blondie example, Um, like like would seem like the least interesting word there. Like heart seems like something one would think about or sing along to glass for sure. Um, But I can't imagine if one were sort of in the In the spirit of sort of Bersani's statistics at the beginning of his the rectum at grave take a poll as to like favorite words within lyrics i can't imagine anyone except me maybe you and bartleby um choosing the word like uh say like in that formulation um the extent to which like is supposed to disappear into a grammar or a syntax is one of the things that interests me about it when it doesn't do that disappearing work um when John Ashbery writes about Gertrude Stein's stanzas and meditation. Stanzas and meditation. He he invokes these sort of uh, like blank, colorless words that one wouldn't otherwise pay attention to. Uh, the real virtue of Gertrude Stein is that her writing so often includes nothing but those small, colorless words, such that there's no nowhere to turn. Uh, like all one has are these small, colorless words. Um, and in that sense, Gertrude Stein helps me think about the materiality of the word like when it doesn't disappear into what it does. Um, Bartleby, Melville in general, is someone who writes about like a lot. Uh, like become the more onerous the sort of the, the simile that like or the simile or analogy that like orchestrates, the more one feels the weight on the word. And it's here maybe that you and your readers can imagine the relation between like and chronic pain. If like is a sort of pivot or a joint between two other things, um, it's not supposed to bear as much weight as it often does. Um, And in those moments where one is aware of like, one grows aware of something like the joint or the ligature, um, the somatic apparatus of language as opposed to what language merely conjures. So I got interested in this word like And in those moments where it doesn't quite disappear, because when it doesn't quite disappear, it reminds me of the extent to which, say, the body in pain refuses to disappear, to go back to your beautiful account of the Cartesian ghost, um, and those moments where one's body doesn't feel ghostly enough. Um, Because it's one thing to experience the body's disappearance when one reads. It's another simply to assume the body's disappearance into, say, the busyness of a day, whether it's making breakfast, or like Zooming with one's students, or picking out socks, um, these are all moments in which the body isn't supposed to be there. Um, when the body is in pain, uh, again, migraine, toothache, or my example, sort of in a, an endlessly disappointing neck, um, suddenly the body doesn't disappear enough, um, not just in terms of reading, but just in terms of sort of like lived experience. Um, So, if if like is a word that usually disappears into its use, um, again, in terms of the disappearance of like into the analogy or simile that it choreographs, those moments where it doesn't quite disappear in Gertrude Stein or Melville, um, Emily Dickinson, uh, seem to offer, um, ironically, an analogy for how pain works. Um, And that pain could work analogically like the word like uh, returns us to those moments where like repeats itself in ways that yields this remainder. um, To think about this sort of the remainder of as as sort of a particular version of substantiveness Um, that's related for me to this, to the notion of the figurative, the figurative as uh, not what disappears into language, but what sort of falls out of it.
1: But yeah, I that's so interesting. Um and it's making me think of um so earlier in the year I had um Dora Zhang um as my guest and we we talked about her new book, um Um Strange no Strange Likeness. Um and it it fully it wraps around the the word like so much. And I think something that I was thinking of was how when you say this is like this, um he is like a lion, you're also ultimately saying he is not a lion. Um, And I think um, it comes out in this, um, on page 62, I'm looking at a a paragraph and you write, um, this is a longish quote, so get ready everyone. Um, And so despite Jean-Luc Nancy's supposition that, quote, it is not impossible that in the end we will discover that the sexual relation behaves like being, lettre understood as verb and act. In relation to what will therefore be being, et not for it, that is the entwined couple, my first sexual relations never felt like being, they felt like being like. Um, and I think that's such an interesting um, thing to say. And I, I very much felt um, I, it resonated with me. And I think something that I would like to ask you about is um, the... Um, the Bersani quote that you're bringing up, um, there is a big secret about sex. Most people don't like it. How do you, are you seeing that type of like um, as a verb um, uh, with the type of like that um, we were just talking about that engages in um, metaphoric or um, like figuration and metaphorization? Yeah, yeah. Um... And I think that's, right. that's my whole question is about the queer philology of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. I think.
0: I think. I think your question is really good at locating something like uh, the the affective universe of 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 those moments of sort of difference from oneself. Um, when one thinks about liking yogurt or liking that lion of a man. Um, it it suggests a kind of like, erotic failure um like broadly speaking when one, one doesn't want to merely like that lion of a man one wants to love him one wants to do anything for him throw oneself into his cage etc um so to to like as opposed to love or, or or desire to to want to be ravished to want to be ravishing would suggest within say the, the radius of affect, something closer to interest as opposed to something like, like jouissance or sort of absolute passion. Um, if, so I, I'm thinking, I, I can't stop thinking about Eve Sedgwick. Um, it's one of the pleasures of, of speaking to you as a Duke grad student to think of Eve's time at Duke. Um, but if, if Eve ends up thinking about affect uh, in such deep ways, her work in affect begins with epistemology, say epistemology of the closet. Um liking effectively would would feel sort of caught between, say what it means to be interested in something as an intellectual venture and what it means to like something effectively as as an effective one. So to go back, like there, your question is so rich, and I like i'm I'm spinning out happily in all these directions at once. Um, but to think about the queer philology of of like, on the one hand, like would feel insufficient to these other aspects. Um, and that feels like a very Jamesian proposition. The notion of say James characters too much living in their heads, um, to like something as opposed to love it is in a lot of ways to feel trapped w- within sort of the, sort of the cerebral frame of things. Um, my, my interest in reclaiming like as sort of like, as, as insufficient as it would seem as, as a queer affect And so far as like one, one thinks about sort of like the Nicki Minaj of sort of the queer affective universe, like everything is slightly neon um, to take something that wouldn't otherwise like register uh, sort of in that, in that field is a way of sort of giving sort of further surface area to sort of the, to the imperceptible. Um, If, if chronic pain to move this from say the, sort of queerness of desire to the queerness of pain. Um, if chronic pain is something that one tries to ignore, if one, one tries to sort of render it as sort of sort of imperceptible as possible, um, then Contingent Figure is a book about sort of how the imperceptible um, occupies more space or more bandwidth than one would want it to. So like seems to occupy that insofar as thinking about like often sort of overlaps with what one likes insofar as liking is uh, sort of an intellectual or sort of a cerebral gambit as much as an affective one.
1: That's a great answer. Um, Oh, you're very fine. I'm like, I'm thinking about so much right now. Um, Well, I was thinking thinking about earlier um, the question of the difference between like and love in terms of philology. You cite... um, who's, um, yeah, I mean, one of my favorite um, thinkers, um, but the 95 yeah. Theses on philology um, in it, when he talks about, we think of, like we need to return philology to the um, philologos, like a loving of language, but maybe we can turn it into a liking of language. Like maybe there's something yeah. to be said about that and how maybe, yeah. I don't know, maybe that can be a project for me. Um, <laughs> But I think um you brought up James and I want to talk to James or about James. He's one of my favorites.
0: Yeah. I wish um, I could talk to James. Um I'm sad. Yeah. i can't produce him. That would be a really great podcast.
1: It really would be. Um I'm sure he could go on forever. It'd be like a 10 part series. Um
0: about me like this.
1: <laughs> um well I want to ask about so you have a whole chapter on late James ongoingness and the figure of hurt. It's called The Inveterate Pagoda. Um And I I just I want to ask, like, um, what are you doing with James here? And I think what I want to bring out in this is the idea of ongoingness, um, especially as related to like this book is called Contingent Figure. And I'm thinking of contingency, which is like um, it has the rhetoric of time. It's 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 randomized. It's um, it. You can't predict it. And I think that's something about um, chronic pain that you that many people have ex- like experienced and can talk about. It's like you don't know when it's going to come on, but you know it's going to, and it, it continues. Um, so I think there's some this weird paradox or maybe this queerness about that kind of pain and how are you bringing James into this and what is, what is he telling us?
0: Yeah, um, I love that word ongoingness. Uh, it's related to another word that contingent figure is obsessed with, which is incessant and incessancy. Um, the title of contingent figure before it was what it is, so it's the, it presently is contingent figure. Um, what is it? Chronic pain and queer embodiment. Um, before that, it was contingent figure, aesthetic duress from Ralph Waldo Emerson to Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, um, and that notion of duress seems related to the question of ongoingness. Insofar as duress would would sort of gesture towards something like duration, um, but also duress in the vernacular of something that is a trial, something that sort of like tests one's own endurance. So if, if chronic pain is, is about a certain experience of ongoingness or, or chronicity, um, that the, the sort of the conventional wisdom when it comes to sort of ongoingness is that one eventually acclimates to it. Um, so for instance, I, I think of, Oh, like, Sort of Lauren, Lauren Berlant's cruel optimism, and the extent to which, like one of the, one of the perfidious aspects of optimism is that it sort of makes one's life sort of acclimatable to itself, um, such that one is no longer even aware of sort of the the pain it causes, sort of the extent to which it jeopardizes oneself. Um, I'm interested in these moments where something isn't acclimatable. Um, so to go back to sort of the, like the example of, of sex, Jean-Luc Nancy, um, like the, the, there's a reason why like an orgasm is relatively brief because like one wouldn't survive it if it lasted like an hour, let alone a day, let alone like a year. Um, so there's this, a certain sort of understanding of how sort of temp- temporally brief things operate versus how sort of temporally elongated or dilated things operate. Um, and I think Henry James is an example of someone for whom ongoingness has all of the intensity of conventionally brief episodes. Um, and this is the way of thinking about my attachment to Henry James in relation to um, queer optimism. Queer optimism is as much interested in sort of experiences that last at, sort of at different sort of durations than they're supposed to, as it is about positive affect. So to, to go back to, sort of parenthetically to queer optimism quickly, um, in Hart Crane's poetry smiles last longer than they're supposed to. Uh, in in Dickinson, it seems like sort of the glimmer of positive affect, like sort of the Cheshire Cat, uh, sort of is more tenacious than it's supposed to be. Um, those, I think, are the germs of contingent figure. And if there's sort of a, a threat of chronic pain and core optimism, it is in this interest in things that shouldn't last as long as they do lasting too long. And that feels like the sort of the, the temporal sort of like metier of Henry James for me, both in terms of the length of his novels, in terms of how, how long one sort of weathers a James text before something happens as a way of, of teaching ourselves just how frequently nothing happens at all um, or, or nothing seems to happen at all. Um, I'm, I'm happy to keep going, but I, I wanna sort of allow you the capacity for, for redirection or sort of refinement, um, however, however you see fit.
1: No, I think that's that's something that the you bring up heart crane, the the smiles last too long. Um and I think that's that's a really interesting um I don't know, it's an interesting idea of something lasting too long or like the orgasm lasting too long. Um and I think I mean I, I'm always thinking of psychoanalysis and like jouissance. It's it it just it's too much, it's excessive. And I think that's something that is at the core of um queerness or or pain and how there's too much of it and you can't put it down. And I think um perhaps even um I don't know, there's a lot of the I guess Melville, I don't know if I would say this about James, but um certainly Melville, but like an excess of words. It's 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 too much. And I think I think maybe there's something in there that says like the actual form the book takes of just being too much. Um, and like what we were saying earlier about, like, it's, it's too much for one sitting. Um, like I can't imagine sitting down and just trying to read all of Moby Dick at once. That would, it's just, it's too much. Um, but I think there's. I, that's, that's beautifully put. It
0: reminds me of, it's like, Eve, Eve Sedgwick's sort of like beautiful sense of sort of the idiomatic Philip, for instance, like it takes one to know one. These, these moments where Eve, um, sort of hears with this sort of like radiant precision, those sort of. Forms of sort of language that we otherwise take for granted. Like, it's too much, I can't, or like, I could just die. Like these moments where suddenly language says more than it means to. Um, And it certainly, it it does speak to, I think a really interesting set of psychoanalytic questions um, that aren't so easily separable from queer theory Um, in terms of how we think about objects, in terms of how we think about sort of the effort to metabolize objects. one of the ways I think about too much is that it's just its, it's just too much to absorb, too much to interject, um, as though sort of objects that are too much would somehow monkey wrench or interrupt what what Freud imagines is the magic of melancholy. Like the one thing melancholy depends on is that one could absorb all of something else, um, whereas too much, is, as I think you you rightly suggest, it sort of contains that element of remainder that I was talking about. I would suggest that James also is, and I'm not going to get a lot of disagreement here. Uh, I don't think James is also too much. Um, and I th- I think you're, I think of sort of as, as a child being told, I was always too much. I, this is yeah. just something precocious kids, queer kids, closeted kids, just sort of like smart asses uh, are, are, are told as though too muchness is something that needs to be corrected out of them such that they could be the sort of sort of this new Goldilocks improvement of themselves of just right um, but like but nothing is quite just right except for too muchness um, not to speak in circles uh, another word related for me to sort of this aesthetic of too muchness that you're uh, sort of describing is the is baroque um, uh, and I, I think of Melville and James and also Dickinson in terms of a, a quality of baroqueness um, uh a psychical lavishness uh, to sort of to imagine the architecture or decor of baroque uh, within a psychical field. Uh, there's a version of the ornamental, there's a version of um, just like sheer extravagance that goes beyond something like utility. Um, and to, to go back from there to the very non-Baroque element of, of of like, like is sort of is meant to be utilitarian, like is meant to sort of get the job done, as as one says, or I guess some people say, get the job done. Um, then the, the book, Contingent Figure, sort of moves back and forth in terms of scale from sort of like the sort of the molecular of sort of. This, this thing that's supposed to disappear into its use versus this, this extravagance um, that could never possibly disappear. Um, but the, the point of that, I think, is to suggest how the, the thing that is imperceptible itself feels like too much. Um, so Moby Dick and Henry James produced these vast universes of writing. What would it mean to imagine an experience of pain, experience of happiness, that replicated that vastness uh, within a single drop. Like one answer is, well, Dickinson, like Dickinson would be an example of absolute distillation uh, of of enormity, of of sort of the extraordinary. So sometimes sort of what is too much is never quite enough, Um, but also too much to go back to Poe as a version of sort of never more. it is itself gratuitous as a formulation. Once you have much, it's too much.
1: Whew. Um, well, I, you, yeah, no, yeah. Well, Brett. I was just thinking about, um, I don't know, the um, auguries of innocence. Um, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand, um, and eternity in an hour—that's that's kind—that's kind, that's getting close. It's not as infinitesimally small as maybe Dickens or all of Dickinson or all of Melville and Dickinson, but I think. This this idea of having holding it all in the palm of your hand and it's too much. But I was I was thinking a lot about um, queerness and camp. Um, and I, I remember I was having a conversation when the Met Gala was on campness. Um, yeah. yeah. And it was we were talking about and like her yeah. outfits. <laughs> well, I think um, I was talking about someone, and we came to the idea that um, I don't know campness or being camp or campy. Um, it's this extravagance, but it's, it's, it couldn't be any other way. Um, and I think that's something that, that queerness or maybe not someone on the outside of queerness, but certainly people on the inside of queerness feel about it's like, I'm too much, but there's no other way for me to be. And I think these texts also do that. Like it's, I don't know it, I say this all the time when I tell people to read, um, Jacques Derrida, I say, it's like, I'm like, it's so much. It's but you will not understand the metaphysics of presence until you just read like twelve of his books or some of his articles and stuff. And then one day you're just gonna get it and you're gonna be like, no, you did have to read all of that in order to get it. And I think something that you're getting towards is the just this idea that too muchness is exactly what you need. But it can't you can't say that too much is exactly right. It always has to be too much. Yeah. And that's the point. So much there,
0: Britt. First, like I I just like I Hearing that people still recommend dairy data to other people like just makes my day, makes my week, makes my year. Um, I do it
1: all the time. Good. No,
0: like I, I'm like I, <laughs> I'm almost moved to tears. I'm so relieved. Um, like when like, depending on the circles one travels, like one doesn't necessarily hear those recommendations as much as, they um, but they're but it's so important. And I yeah I agree, um, a thousand percent. Um, I, so I'm, I'm struck by this notion that too muchness could be exact, exactly the right thing as opposed say to the tautology of too much is too much. Um, when it comes to, um, well, when I, when I think about sort of, so I, I have, a I have thoughts on camp and I have thoughts, well, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, like the first thing to say in relation to camp as a, as a way of just sort of like running a camp circle, sort of around Auguries of innocence. I think of the sound of music and like how does one hold a moonbeam in one's hand um, as a way of like trying to solve a problem like Maria. Um, The notion of solving a problem versus being a problem is interesting to me. It seems like a like a variation on Eve Sedgwick's sort of like interest in sort of the difficulty of distinguishing what one desires from what one desires to be, Um, as though part of part of being sort of a queer subject, which is to say sort of a, an unruly non-subject subject um, is to identify oneself as a problem. But if one identifies as a problem, um, then one ends up identifying, I think, with chronic pain itself um, as though, so if 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 for Lee Edelman, um, and I, I I keep returning to no future, wanting to make amends for just sort of like the, the brisk work queer optimism makes of it, um, but if, if, if queerness sort of is figured in the death drive for Edelman, I wonder if some more demotic vernacular version of that is just sort of like queers are a problem. Um, queers are a problem with problems uh, to go back to sort of Lady Gaga's nesting doll outfits at, you know, on the Met red carpet um, to sort of, to be a queer with chronic pain is, is, is an a version of gratuitousness. It's like the too muchness of too muchness all over again. Um, But maybe this is a way of circling back to the question of characterology and the the funniness, the queerness of identifying not with Ahab, but with the pain Ahab would feel, Um, as though that were a version of of identification um, worth sort of staking sort of the the terrain
1: of. That's so interesting. Um, And I want to sit with it, but I also, I want to ask another question. Um, And you brought up... You've brought up Bersani a couple of times, and you bring up Edelman. And since you open that door, I, I want to go to it. Um, I I am not enough of a queer theorist. I'm I'm like I want to do more, but you know I have my other things. Um, other people can do it, but I, I want to ask. So the title of this chapter is "Is the Rectangle a Grave?" Um, Bersani's famous quote is "The Rectum a Grave." I'm wondering, can you kind of explain? you know, your little take on it or your little twist um, and how that relates to figuration um, and then what you're doing with it um, in terms of pain um, yeah. and what how that can shed a light on it.
0: Um, yeah. So is the rectangle a grave as a chapter? Like began with the title um like and the problem that's is great once title once one comes up with a title like, guess the rectangular grave one has to sort of produce a paper or an essay that can justify it um so that's what happened i came up with the title as as a joke uh and and then it became this this project that i was sort of deeply attached to um, so but i Leo Bersani is deeply important to me. Um, his, the, the delicacy of his observations and the, like the, the sheer sort of breathtakingness of his rigor um, are up there in my pantheon with, with Eve um, or James or Melville. Um, one of the things I admire most about Bersani's work over the course of these many decades is how, and this is a way of going back to like, someone else can do the queer theory. Um, you're like, you're doing all these other valuable things. Um, but what I love about Bersani is, that like one could say he sort of, he skips and jumps from like one disciplinary field to another. And so far as like, he writes art, like art art theory he, like aesthetic aesthetic theory on caravaggio or um, sort of the assyrian temple release um, he writes about poetry in terms of Mallarmé. he writes about the novel in terms of balzac or dh lawrence or henry james and he writes queer theory with the best of them um, i first fell in love with bersani as sort of a in, in terms of his criticism of james um and in terms of his readings of of rothko um, and the, the work of this chapter is a rectangle, a grave is an attempt to con- connect Bersani's aesthetic sensibility to the sort of the more vo- voracious uh, and, and differently audible sort of arguments in a book like Homo's uh, or in sort of aforementioned earlier essay is the rectum, a grave. Um, how could say, the, the overt uh, sort of queer activism of those those latter texts um, be coextensive with the sort of aesthetic meticulousness that informs his reading of abstract expressionism um, or his reading of the sort of the permutations of Mallarmé or Rothko or Beckett. So one of the things I admire about Persani's work on Rothko is its sort of masterclass in sort of the practice of attention. So... In that sense, the book is a tribute to sort of a practice of attention that, like, I I like to think I've I've learned in part from him. Um, I think this book is I think of this book as much as a tribute to to even and and, and Bersani as much as say queer optimism was like a critique of queer theory. Um, that's not to say this is like the reparative work it's sort of over and against the paranoid work. Um, and those are those are formulations I've been thinking about again recently too, but in terms of um, sort of your your question of how sort of Bersani figuration relates to pain, um, I let's see. Well, I I guess one could go back to sort of the opening of *Is the Rectum a Grave* and sort of and the extent to which no one really likes sex, and sort of on the one hand we have this sort of um, sort of. Uh, heroic like opera melodrama of sort of disappearing into the jouissance of sex. And on the other hand, we have the sheer fact that no one likes being in pain um, and how one moves from sort of the, the discomfiture of sort of uh, of consciousness to sort of the obliteration of consciousness um, is something that that Bersani's idiom seems sort of especially sort of, uh, sort of useful um, toward that's sort of sort of like like a sloppy fizzle out of an answer. um, but I'll, I'm also mindful of talking too much. I want to sort of no
1: make- I, I think that's a good answer. um I think I think you got to what i was I was thinking about, um of the the painfulness of sex merged with um I don't know something else, something that I don't know. I was I'm thinking about I, I keep trying I've explained that quote to somebody in my life like four times and they're just like, I don't get it. And I'm like, but you, it's so true. Yeah, um, no, exactly. and I, I just
0: like kinda, when they of get it. They'll get it.
1: Yeah. And I'm like, you keep saying all these things that make me think you agree with this, but they, they just don't. And I'm like, I guess one day you'll just, it'll hit you and you'll think, okay. Yeah. Bersani was right.
0: Um, yeah. Well, and until then, uh, to go back to the sort of like your slash our interest in like, like like becomes a placeholder. Like it's, you can agree that it's like this uh, until you're certain that it is this. Um, like like becomes a kind of like training wheel of ontology. It's like you take, you take the like off and suddenly like you feel sort of like the rush of sort of oneself in air atmosphere. Um, because when one feels it, one feels it to traffic in another tautology, uh, whereas when it like something than one think when it's thinking about it as opposed to sort of inhabiting it even as sort of the the vision of sort of like erotic delirium is that one isn't um, aware of it at all um, i year, years ago i was having a conversation with someone um, just about sort of feeling like erotically disappointing and the difference between sort of being 100 percent present with someone in the moment versus being like 95 percent present in the moment with five percent in this on the ceiling looking down. Um, I feel like that speaks to um, well the, I guess the way in which for like bersani sort of how we think about sex be- becomes more generally how we think about experience itself. Um, how we think about sex versus how we are in the moment like sexually speaking as an analogy for, experience would be a way of thinking about bersani's relation to sex as itself a version of say Emerson's account of say deep grief as an analogy for experience um that's to say that like this is an emersonian book um and I came to Emerson relatively late in life and I continue to feel very much like like I'm in the midst of the catechism um I don't like i I, I want to be an emersonian but i I don't feel like I'm there, the way, say, I am a Jamesian, which I feel in my bones, to go back to the difference between, like, you'll know it when it hits you. Um, but for Emerson, the, the problem is that one can never quite have the experience and think about it, too. Uh, and sex would be a version of that. And I, so in these moments of sort of Brissani's um, sort of devotion to abstract expressionism, one gets a sense of a, a, a version of attention that seems to go as deep as sort of the question as we saw in a shattering uh, and, and La- La- sense. And what would it mean to imagine something like a sort of psychoanalytic travail um, founded in the, the quiet of attention as opposed to sort of the,
1: what does that sound? <laughs> um, I think they're inclement weather sirens. I'm not sure. I was just having apocalypse a
0: of like Virginia Woolf in London or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's the
0: we're having that. Yeah. Well, that's huh. I hope Bartleby Bartleby's brave. Like Bartleby will take care of you.
1: Yeah, he seems fine. I'm not worried. <laughs> no. Well, the cat will survive the apocalypse. That's a given. Yeah.
0: Um, so anyway, to go back to sort of this this notion of like of what psychoanalysis consists, of what say drives or desires are composed. Um, there's there's an there's the suggestion i think in bersani sort of across his corpus um that attention is itself is sort of deeply imbricated in these psychical economies as its as its opposite uh, a kind of radical or violent dismantlement
1: um thank you i think that gives me a lot to think about um and maybe we'll have another episode as a follow up um, but i have one final question and that is what is what is next what are you thinking about currently um even if you don't have anything in the pipeline like what are what are what is your mind constellating around right now
0: yeah um well the the good news is like because it's my spring break i am totally buried in sort of a wormhole of a project um the deadline was a while ago and it's 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 part of a larger thing. I think I like to hope, um, but I'm I'm writing about well on the one hand like Maggie Nelson's Argonauts, um, but I'm thinking about the Argonauts. It's it's kind of amazing. Um, I yeah I've known Maggie for a long time. We were in a a, a crash course in French some like uni summer school years and years and years and years ago. Um, I was. In, we were both in grad school, and she's the only friend I had in this French class, which was mostly composed of sort of like Upper West Side sort of uh, dowagers wanting sort of a better sort of literacy when it comes to their French menus. But anyway, so I, I, I'm thinking about, and again, I'm so immersed in this project that I barely have the like the language for it at this point. Um, but I'm wanting to think about. A lot of say like the the methodology wars slash sort of paranoid reparative reading um as a question not only of affect which or characterology and i'm thinking here of say um like david kernick's recent thing on telling a few lies um and the extent to which surface reading becomes one caricature and sort of like paranoid hermeneutics of suspicion become another um i have not needed eraser on my finger if like your audience is wondering (laughs) Um, that's what's what it is um but i'm I'm interested in sort of the way f- form itself gets sort of modulated in in Eve's essay you're so paranoid you probably think this essay slash introduction is about you and Maggie nelson and and Wayne Kustenbaum, uh and, and camp Marmalade um become these sort of interesting examples of oh there's too much to say and not enough to say at this point um but but suffice it to say, I'm, I'm thinking about sort of explanation and context as, as figures, as opposed to sort of explanation as a methodology. Um, but I'm also trying to sort of think through Maggie's attachment to Winnicott in relation to Eve's attachment to Klein. So that's one project. Uh, the larger thing has to do with mysticism, actually, to go back to your invoking of sort of the supernatural and the Cartesian ghost um, or spirituality. Um, I'm interested in sort of... Trying, trying to think through queer versions of mysticism. Um, Elizabeth Bishop is part of this project. Um, but also what I really want to do is to go back to writing poems. Um, I keep trying to say no to things unsuccessfully so I can have time to work on this next poetry manuscript. Um, but maybe this summer, um, the manuscript is called Jones Very, uh, which is an homage to um, one of Emerson's acolytes who, who thought he was Jesus, uh, speaking of mysticism. So yeah, I'm there's so many piles of like a, a paper in this study that were cleared for the sake of this podcast. Um, but I I hope to be able to tell you more about this this Sedgwick Maggie Nelson project down the road. Um, its present title is automatic sweetheart. I will share that. That's a good title. It's William James.
1: Um Well, I like it. Um and I hope that in whatever form it comes out as, we can have you back on the show um, um, and we can talk more and we can come back to, we can do a little bit more on contingent figure um, and uh, it'll be great. Um, thank
0: you so much. Uh, it's been really fun. Um, I'm like, I'm so used to sort of to zooming as far as like teaching goes, but this is my first podcast, I think, which makes me feel even older than I am. Uh, so I, I apologize for my, my nervousness uh, and hopefully, it's not sort of deeply perceptible. Um, but I've had no, a lot of
1: I don't think so. I'm I'm really glad we got to um to sit down and chat, as they said in spare quotes. Yeah. Um to meet in in quotes. Um well it was great to have you on. Um it really was such a pleasure to read this and to talk with you about it. Mm-hmm. Um and I will be thinking about it for well, maybe not for the next two months because I'm I'm in I'm about to hit finals period, but I will I'm sure I'll think about it at some point again. Mm-hmm. Um
0: Um, And as far as uh, finals go and sort of uh, the sirens go, I hope you survive your various apocalypses.
1: Yes, so do I. Um, So thank you for coming on the show once again. This was Michael Snedeker, um, whose book Contingent Figure, Chronic Pain and Queer Embodiment is out this year, 2021, from the University of Minnesota Press. I'm Britt Edelin, and I'm your host for the New Books and Literary Studies and New Books Channel Network. Thank you, and until next time.